by the Reverend Richard Coles and Sean Williams and produced by Lisa Jenkinson. Steve Punt is about to investigate the 1928 Charfield rail crash, the mystery of two unknown victims, and the unidentified woman in black who visited the memorial for 25 years. Was she royalty? It's a field ripe for conspiracy theorists, but we have Punt PI to sort the facts from the fiction in a few moments. I was certainly impressed. I was surprised at quite how many short stories uh, are being written. Clive Anderson, Chair of the Judges for the BBC International Short Story Award 2012. I suppose classically a short story has a sort of good twist. So it can be a joke form, it can be a macabre short story, it can be a tale that has you gripped, or an emotional resolution that <laughs> leaves you uh, crying. You can hear the ten shortlisted stories over two weeks each weekday afternoon, starting on Monday at 3.30 on BBC Radio 4. Now Steve Punt continues his assignment as Radio 4's very own gumshoe. And this week Steve's called to rural Gloucestershire on the trail of a rather shadowy mourner. Another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Got a case for you. I need you to pursue a woman in black. Yes, that's right. A woman in black. Year after year, she returned to the same place to lay flowers. Rumour has it she could have been mixed up in some sort of royal scandal. No one ever knew who she was. Do some digging, but make sure you stay on track. Nothing's quite as it seems in this one, punt. Tread carefully. Message ends. A woman in black and scandalous rumours. Try and keep me away. Tracy had handed me a ticket to mystery. Via Paddington. Uh, now, platform four. Platform four. Here we are. Staying on track meant heading west in pursuit of the woman in black. It was all aboard for a journey that would take me back to the age of steam, the night mail and one of the great railway companies. Tracy had blown the whistle for a case involving rumours of trackside sabotage, cover-ups, colonial secrets and the cutthroat murder of a policeman who may have known something. My final destination was unclear, although I was sure of one thing. The first stop was Bristol Parkway, the station you go to to avoid Bristol. On arrival, I was told to look for a man in a black Toyota. A man in a black car to lead me to a woman in black. It all sounded rather... dark? At first, there was no sign. But I wasn't here for a quarter pounder. I had work to do. Where was my man? And then he presented himself. Hello, hi. Steve. A man by the name of Alan Hamilton. Nice to meet you. An affable chap and an author and historian. He was to be my guide around what would prove to be a strange and macabre tale. A churchyard and a memorial, but to what and where? Half an hour and all I'd seen was the M5, 
But then Alan signalled left and soon we were driving between hedgerows and round tractors into deep countryside. We pulled up in a rather isolated spot where the silence was only broken by the distant rumble of the occasional train. This is the old church at Charfield in a country lane surrounded by very few houses. So this this is the churchyard where the the woman in black was seen. Yes, all the stories about seeing her would have taken place here. And uh, if she came by car, the car would have been parked in the lane that we're in. Alan motioned for me to follow him through the church gate and in among the gravestones. You see in the corner over there, well, that's the, the memorial. In the furthest corner by a big hedge stood a large monument. A monument which from the road you wouldn't even know was there. There we are. Celtic Cross, faded with age. The London Midland and Scottish Railway Company, in memory of those who lost their lives in the... Sorry, it's quite hard to read. In the railway accident. The railway accident at Charfield, October the 13th, 1928. There are, I think, ten names. Yeah. A memorial to a railway accident. So how was this connected to my mysterious mourner? This is where this woman in black was sighted is it yes regularly across probably nearly 25 years do we know which of these people she was interested in or uh, we related don't to? we don't we don't there's an awful lot we don't know yes she was apparently never asked who she was by anybody who claimed to have seen her right and a number of people did claim to have seen her never made herself known to anyone in the church or no no, absolutely not. Or talk not. to anyone? Nope. How did they describe her? Um, arriving um, a lady, which in those days meant that, a lady, usually chauffeur-driven, apparently. Right. And dressed all in black, and um, around this monument, usually at about the, the anniversary of the accident. Um, chauffeur-driven? Arriving in a chauffeur-driven car. But who was she mourning? So, yeah, Mrs. Clara, Miss Millicent, John Henry Pinkney. Then, while reading the names on the memorial, something caught my eye. Too unknown. Too unknown. Too unknown. Two sets of remains were put into this grave, if you like, who were never identified. She could be linked to the, the two unknown, then. She could be. The anecdotal local legend is that she would have been. Uh, these two unknown here from 1928 are still unknown today? Yes. We, we have no idea who they were. Right. They couldn't be specific about the age, although they, they did hazard a guess that it was a youth and a girl. And this seemed to be backed up by at least one witness. The porter at Gloucester Station gave evidence to the coroner's inquest that he had inspected the tickets of two young people as he put it of reasonable means which meant in fact in those days middle class yeah he'd inspected their tickets and they had nobody with them reasonable means so who were these mystery youngsters traveling alone and if they were connected to a mystery mourner of similarly reasonable means why were they never acknowledged? It was time to start asking questions. 
but where to start so many years after the event? I decided that I needed a drink, so I headed down to the local pub, the Railway Tavern. The Railway Tavern. It turned out to be right next to the disused Charfield station. That's the old water tower, and that's that's the station master's house. Oh, which right, is yeah. But about all that's left. As luck would have it, landlord station, Martin yeah. Redmond was able to rustle up more than just a pint and a sandwich. They came with a rather unusual side order, a large assortment of press cuttings from the time. Obviously, are you interested in the crash or the, the, the mystery? All both. So both it was. Martin then produced the file in question. Picture from Sunday, October 14th, 1928. Uh, it was foggy at the time. The train was travelling about 50 miles an hour. There's a report in the Bristol Times, and then they've got lots of witnesses. It made for intriguing reading, and it only deepened the mystery. Not only was the identity of the children unknown, but the cause of the crash was also shrouded in unanswered questions. In the early hours of October the 13th, 1928, an overnight mail train was coming down from Leeds, bound for Bristol. As well as mail sorting coaches, there were a number of passenger carriages too, old carriages made of wood and lit by gas. Outside Charfield, just after 5am, a goods train was reversing into a siding, but the final truck and the engine hadn't yet quite cleared the main line. The express mail train approaches and at 5.20 a.m. The driver and the fireman had miraculous escapes from injury. Both The official inquiries of the disaster will be held on Thursday by Colonel Pringle of the Ministry of Transport. The name Colonel Pringle has a touch of Cluedo about it. And fittingly, his official inquiry did indeed accuse the driver on the mail train of going through a danger signal. The coroner's verdict was manslaughter. Yet, when the case came to court, the judge threw it out, directing the jury to find the driver not guilty. What on earth had gone on? So now there were not one, not two, but three unknowns that didn't add up. Why had the case against the driver been dropped? Who were the two children and were either of them connected to our woman in black? Could the landlord of the railway tavern put me on the right lines? And the lady with the car turning up every year with the Rolls Royce. Nobody felt, I have to laugh, because nobody thought to ask her who she was. <laughs> well, who are you? <laughs> hmm. Martin had a point. Was the joke on me? Was all this woman in black business a tall tale, the stuff of local legend? There was one last person I'd been told could help me with my inquiries. I'd assumed there were no eyewitnesses remaining, but I was wrong. Hello. Phyllis Portlock is 93 and remembers the night of the crash. Do you know, it was a terrible... I can see it now, because the engines was all piled up under the bridge. And, you know, on the Sunday morning when we walked down, I could still hear the engines where they were cooling down, hissing. You do know what I mean? Yeah. And can you remember what sort of um, effect it had uh, in, around the area? Oh, terrible. 
I can remember that because that was all the talk, you know, in them days. I can remember that. People talking about it. What did yeah. they? What were they saying? Well, I mean to say there was rumours in the papers and all that, you know, because they used to think the two children that was on that train that was never named mm. or never found out that they had that in there about royalty. They wondered if they belonged to royalty. Aha! The royal scandal that Tracy had talked about. Well, they thought something to do with somebody who put two kids on from the royal family or something. But they never found them children out, lot, did they? No. Not to this day. No. Was our woman in black an HRH, lamenting the loss of a secret love child? Did you did you hear about the the woman who visited the memorial? Yes, I did. Oh, yes, I used to say there was um, people that uh, Lady in Black did come there and visit every now and again. Yeah. But she never spoke to anybody. I'm only telling you what I've been told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she'd get in a car and then she was driven away. So that was also talked about? Oh, that was talked about, yeah, a lot, because some people did say, oh, it was a lot of rubbish, but I think it was right, because people would never say they'd see somebody coming there in a car, would them? No, it seems a very odd thing to just... Do, yeah, this is it. Hmm. But Hmm. the thing is about it, there's some people don't want to say nothing, isn't it? Why do people not want to talk about it? Just because it's such a, a bad memory? Or because they think there's something... Well, you don't never know, do you? Mysterious. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was the thing that was never found out, was it? Yeah. So you think there are, you know, there were people who knew more than... I wonder sometimes myself that. I wonder if there was people that knew more about it, you know. So, as for anything else, I can't tell you. Hmm, curious. Were there people who knew more than they let on? All right, then. Thank you very much. Ta-da. Bye. After talking to Mrs Portlock, I was pretty much convinced that there had been a woman in black. But the claim of a royal connection seems conjured out of the ether of gossip. Or was it? I felt like I was in a maze of hearsay, badly needing someone to guide me to the facts. I headed to London, where Bruno Derrick from the National Archives had found official documents relating to the crash. The coroner said this is one of the strangest cases he's ever had to deal with. And Bruno had uncovered a crucial clue to the identity of the two unknown. Among the debris that was found in the train was the, the left breast of a school jacket, and on the pocket was a school badge which bore the words Luke Magistrat, which must have been the sort of school motto. Yes. And this may have belonged to the boy who died, but they don't appear to follow this through, I'm afraid, and it's, it was left as a mystery. Luke Magistrat. This seemed like a crucial clue. Could the official papers also shed light on why the case against the train driver was dismissed when the inquiry had concluded that he was to blame? Because the charges were dropped the, the papers haven't been retained here anyway so it's going to be very difficult I think as to why the decision was made to drop the case but that was what happened even though the investigating officer Colonel Pringle certainly seemed to think that there's good evidence against the driver. Um, can you think of, of, of any other case where a driver after an accident as serious as this uh, has just charges have just been completely dropped? I can't think of any case myself, no. Not not as serious as this one here. 
if I'd been able to find his details of his employment, that might have given some clue, actually. Now, I was really keen to try and find that, but unfortunately I wasn't able to find that. No. But I, I can't find him employed by any railway company, so I can't find details of his employment anywhere. Hmm, strange. Was there some kind of cover-up afoot? I needed to get a clearer view of what exactly had gone wrong that night. I was back on the train, this time to Didcot Parkway. On the way, I took a little light reading, Colonel Pringle's official report into the Charfield incident. According to the testimony, the driver had claimed the signal was at clear, whereas the signalman insisted it was at danger. It was night, so this meant the difference between a green light or a red one. How could one be mistaken for the other? Was the driver simply lying or was there something more sinister going on? Didcot Railway Centre, Family Fun Day and Train Spotters Paradise. But my notebook was for more than just engine numbers. I was here for a briefing from an expert witness. Would you like to go in? I'd been given the all clear. Peter Lugg, railwayman of 43 years, started as an engine cleaner in 1946 and held almost every job in the business, including driver and fireman. We're now going up into the signal box controlling the branch line for the uh, Didcot branch. We climbed the steep steps to the signal box, something I've wanted to do since I saw the railway children at the age of eight. But I wasn't here to wave my underwear at train drivers which was lucky, since there were several right outside, watering a steam engine that sizzled quietly as Peter gave me an idiot's guide to signalling. Let's assume we're at this signal box. OK. Uh, With the train running this way, this starting signal will go to green. So, uh, sorry, what was I going to say? An idiot's guide, which I was too much of an idiot to quite follow. So he explained it again, slower. Was actually controlled by box A, not by box B. I the distance signal will only show caution controlling the distance here. My head was spinning with distant starters and outer and inner homes, but the long and short of it was that with the points set to the siding, the signal the express driver passed through must have been at danger. Unless... Peter had an alternative and rather more alarming theory. It would have to be what I would call a malicious act. Right. I can show you how it could be done. So the only way that that signal could have been uh, clear is by some sort of sabotage? Yes. yes. How very sinister. Peter took me outside to demonstrate. So we're right at the base of a signal here. Correct. This is the wire which is uncovered between the signal box and the signal. Now, you can see that if you have sufficient movement here, you can just see it starting to shake. So you just moved that signal just by treading on the wire. So it is clearly feasible to give, as you say, a false indication hmm. on the signal. So um, given the discrepancy between what the driver saw and what the inquiry found. Do you, do you think that's feasible that that's what happened? I have great confidence in the driver and fireman. Two men competent experienced yeah. I believe the signal wasn't clear or showing clear. 
So as we boarded the train back to the station, there was only one conclusion Peter could draw. One can imagine many scenarios which might have led to it, but none of them really hold water. And in the end, one reaches the stage of saying it was personal persons unknown tampering with the signalling. It has to be that, because that is the only thing that really ticks all the boxes. Mmm, foul play on the line. It was an interesting theory. But there is another possibility. There were two people on the footplate that night, the driver and the fireman, Fred Want, and according to the inquiry, he had spoken some crucial words to the driver. Fred Want told him to go, mate. It's green. Dr Judith Rowbottom has studied the case. It was not uncommon for the fireman to look out for signals while the driver was at the controls. So it wasn't just the driver who needed sharp eyes. Since a nasty rail crash in the 1850s, you were not allowed to work for the railway in any active capacity if you're red-green colourblind. If Fred Want had managed to avoid being tested or had fudged the testing, then it's actually the responsibility of the company. What is telling is that they make no attempt after that to renew the prosecution. They simply let it go. Mm. Everybody lets it go. So was the case buried because the company might actually have been liable for a big payout? How else could a red signal be seen as green? But I was neglecting the other mystery surrounding the case, the two unknown. It became a national cause celeb. From the Times down to the Sunday tabloids, they all carried the news of the missing children. Who would come forward to claim these dead bodies? But as we know, no one ever did. And that led some to certain conclusions. When nobody came forward in this country, um, the immediate reaction was, oh, then they must be um, colonial children, the children of colonial parents. But there would be nothing, um, nothing shameful in parents having to work abroad, surely? So long as the parents were both white English, Aha, uh -huh. right. Because I strongly suspect that the father was British in the colonial service of some kind and that he had contracted a relationship which he at least regarded as formal. Yes. And had wished his children, though mixed race, to be brought up and educated in Britain. Under those circumstances, I can imagine a very appalled reaction. It was hugely frowned on. Could it really be that the morals of the colonial set meant that some children travelled third class, not just on trains, but through life? Was it possible that a family was too ashamed to come forward given all the publicity surrounding the case? And what of that blazer badge with the motto, Luque Magistrat? There is still, just outside Leeds, a school called St Ethelburgers, and that is still the motto of St Ethelburgers School, which was founded in 1912, and founded in particular, something it still specialises in, is for the children of parents on overseas service. Aha! Maybe now I was getting somewhere. 
Were the children returning to the colonies via Bristol, or perhaps running away from school? Who were they? And the story was about to take an even more dramatic turn. The chief constable of Bristol was found with his throat cut. Was somebody going to extreme lengths to keep the identity of the two unknown? Unknown. In theory, the murdered chief constable revealed the identity of the children to this local solicitor, Mr. Hapgood, and then had his throat cut. Yeah, this was in the era of great conspiracy. This is the age of foreign fascist spies.、Um, this is the age when the original saint stories were being written by Ian Carteris, and so people began to try to explain. Mystery of the children, as a foreign conspiracy, it fits absolutely into the the culture of the time. Yes, foreign royalty or even British royalty killing to cover up. But how could I sort the fact from the conspiracy fiction? I asked genealogist Stephen Thomas to review the case with me, and he found something which, if confirmed, is a startling discovery. He found reference to a local newspaper article reporting the proceedings of an unrelated court case, in which a woman had in fact claimed to know the identity of the two unknown. And that mentioned the date 1937, when the young lady from London appeared in court. Right, and the young lady's named、uh, as Alice Mary Desborough from London, a young lady. Right, and she claimed the children. Right, so. So, in fact, somebody this this、uh, Alice Desborough, yeah, did claim that she knew who these children were. She came forward, and believe it or not, nobody followed it up until now. Was Alice Mary Desborough the woman in black, and was talk of a royal connection not too wide of the mark? The Desborough family、um, do go back to James the First. And indeed, it's said that she was a young lady who came from London. And in London, there is, there or was, a distinguished family of Desborough. One of whom, Charles Ernest Maitland Desborough, was actually born in Hampton Court Palace. A distinctly regal pedigree. And the next revelation seemed even more convincing. They were an Indian civil service and army. Type family, you know the ones that were over in India and sent their children back to England to be educated. Yes, yes. Spent a lot of time out there. Had a lot of children in India. This Charles Ernest Maitland Desborough was born in Hampton Court Palace itself in 1865, and his own father was a John Desborough, who was a colonel in the in the army, I believe, in the Guards, but also spent time in India. They, they were a very international family and a very wealthy family. And it wouldn't be. Beyond the bounds of reason, to expect that they could produce、um, a family with sufficient wealth to have a chauffeur drive down to the West Country, which is what the lady in black did, of course, when she visited the grave every year. So you put those two theories together—the royalty theory and the Indian service theory—and maybe there's something there with this family. Maybe indeed. Had I found my woman in black, a daughter or sister of a colonial civil servant who'd had children out of wedlock? Perhaps mixed race. Back then, such a source of shame to their family that when they perish in a terrible train crash, no one comes forward to claim them. No one except an anonymous mourner who returns annually to grieve at that lonely memorial in Charfield for over twenty years. It all seemed to add up. Time to close the case.
Well, there is one other possibility that rather diverts us to a different line altogether. Well, family of the locals, such as the funeral director's daughter, who gave some testimony, and the local carpenter, they speak that, of the destruction by fire the scene being so intense that, in fact, the carpenter made two small boxes to hold body parts that could not be attributed. Right. So, so, so there are two what look like small coffins, but in fact they are just to hold. Uh, in fact, yeah, they a were just a selection of pieces that no one can identify very gory but that was that's what the idea is yes so perhaps there weren't any children at all is it just possible that a village so traumatized by grief misinterpreted the two small boxes as caskets do we even know that there were ever two unknown Punt P.I. was produced by Lawrence Grizzell. Tracy was played by Robert Blythe. Next week, Steve Punt pursues a tale of secret maps, invisible ink and missing persons in the time of Sir Walter Raleigh. Steve Richards looks behind the scenes at Westminster and we hear from a casualty of the government reshuffle, the former Welsh Secretary Cheryl Gillan. She talks about the liberation of finally being able to speak her mind about a constituency conflict in the week in Westminster after the news. But first, here's Mariella Frostrup with news of her series on Wednesday. This month, Bringing Up Britain returns to Radio 4. We'll hear from families who are raising the next generation, challenge the professionals whose research is changing young lives, and we'll share advice and some very different views on how best to bring up our children. From the perils and possibilities of growing up online, through the battleground of the bedroom, to the complex politics of adoption, we'll be looking at the theory and the rather messier practice of 21st century parenting. Join me, Mariella Frostrup, for Bringing Up Britain on Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock here on BBC Radio 4.